Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we continued our look at Scandinavian activity in the East during the Viking Age. As was the case in the West, there was a fair amount of trading and raiding going on, and our focus was on Constantinople, the great city, or Miklagord as the Vikings called it. Scandinavian traders made fortunes in its markets, and Viking warriors won glory fighting against it, and sometimes even for it. Emperor Basil II set up an elite force of Scandinavian soldiers called the Varangian Guard, and they served as imperial bodyguards for centuries. They were known for their outstanding bravery and impeccable loyalty. Most of the time. This time, we'll go even further east. We'll follow the great river Volga all the way to the Caspian Sea and into Muslim lands, where Scandinavians, as was their habit, combined commerce with armed conflict. We'll also get our first real eyewitness account of Viking life from someone who met them and survived to tell the tale. Episode 15, Serkland. Beyond Miklagord, there was lively trade also with the Muslims in Central Asia and the Middle East. The Scandinavians called all these lands Serkland, but it's important to remember that this is a geographical or cultural region and it doesn't indicate any unified political entity. Serkland included several countries and there were many different peoples living there. Originally, it referred to the area south of the Caspian Sea, but later it was used to denote Muslim lands more broadly, sometimes including North Africa and other territories around the Mediterranean conquered by Arab armies. As so often is the case, the meaning of the word Serkland is disputed. Some claim that it's derived from the Latin word for silk, sericum, thus stressing the mercantile bond between Scandinavia and Serkland. And perhaps more specifically, its role as a link in the Silk Road between the Far East and Europe. Another explanation would be that the name comes from the word Saracen, used by the Byzantines to refer to Muslims. A third explanation is that serk isn't Latin or Greek at all, but in fact the Old Norse word for shirt or gown. If this etymological explanation is correct, then the Vikings refer to these Muslim lands as the land of the gown wearers. It's certainly likely that Scandinavians, who are accustomed to wearing trousers, found men wearing gowns noteworthy, but I guess we'll never know for sure. As far as we know, the first Scandinavians who traveled to Serkland to trade did so in the 9th century, so more or less at the same time as they reached Constantinople for the first time. And much like their Byzantine counterparts, the markets of Serkland were always good places to sell slaves, honey and furs from the north. Some scholars have suggested that the first Scandinavian traders reached established commercial connections with Baghdad as early as the first years of the 800s. That argument is partially based on the finding of dirham coins dated to the year 804 or 805. These coins were discovered at the Peterhof Palace complex near St. Petersburg, which is exactly along the route you'd expect to find Arabic coins brought from Serkland by Scandinavian traders. But the age of the coins in an isolated find doesn't really prove anything. Coins could stay in circulation for quite some time, and they could also have been part of stolen treasure brought north at a much later date. But whether Scandinavians started to trade with Serkland in the beginning, middle, or even end of the 9th century, the geography was always the same. 
If your goal wasn't Miklagord, the great city, but rather the markets of Serkland, you'd still start off by going to Aldegjuborg and Holmgord. From there, you'd continue along the Lovet River south in search for the sources of the river Volga. But here, you'd be faced with your first serious obstacle, and you'd have to get off your boat and transport it over land for a bit. Once you reached the modest beginnings of the mighty river Volga, you could again hop in your boat and continue downstream, first to the east and then to the south. You'd pass through territories controlled by various tribes until you reached the land of the Khazars. Their capital, Attil, on the shores of the Caspian Sea, was an important stop on the way. It was a busy market in its own right, and from here Scandinavian traders could set sail across the Caspian Sea to meet up with, or possibly even join, caravans on their way to Baghdad, the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. In case you feel I'm just rattling off a bunch of names that you have no relation to whatsoever, then please consult the map on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. It should help you to get a grasp on the geography involved. We have a pretty good idea how the Scandinavians traveled because we can follow the money trail, quite literally. Along the Volga, for instance, in the district of Yaroslavl in present-day Russia, we have some of the earliest finds of Arabic coins in all of Europe. Hordes of silver coins from Baghdad have also been found in Scandinavia itself. On the Baltic Sea islands of Ireland and Gotland, some 40,000 coins with Arabic text have been found. These coins were minted in the 9th and 10th centuries by the caliphs in Baghdad, who ruled a vast empire. One of these caliphs was Harun al-Rashid of uh, 1001 Nights fame. He reigned there until the year 809, and even though the Abbasid Caliphate found itself in decline from the 10th century onward, its coins continued to find their way to Scandinavia, indicating brisk trade with the Vikings. Viking Age Scandinavians haven't left too many written sources describing their lives and times. They did know how to write, and they had a rich literary tradition, but unfortunately for us, it was almost exclusively oral. This means that the lion's share of first-hand accounts of Viking activity come from non-Scandinavians, and most notably the victims of their various raids. That creates an unfortunate bias in the way Scandinavians are portrayed, and also means that the texts about them tend to focus on what they pillaged and whom they killed. But luckily enough, we have one fascinating source that goes beyond the regular litany of what the Vikings destroyed and whom they killed, and it describes some of the mores of Viking Age Scandinavians. This source was written in the first half of the 10th century in Serkland. This description of the Vikings was penned by a guy called Ahmed ibn Fadlan, and he was the secretary and advisor on religious questions to the ambassador from the Caliph in Baghdad to the Volga Bulgars, a people that had recently converted to Islam. He wrote a travel log about his journey to the north, and it includes some bits about Scandinavians who were living and working as traders along the Volga River, making fortunes in selling furs and slaves, apparently primarily female sex slaves, to the locals. Ibn Fadlan was impressed with the perfect physique of the tall, strong, and blonde Vikings, tall as date palms, as he put it. Describing their clothes, he makes a point of the fact that they didn't wear kaftans or tunics, that is, gowns, that the Scandinavians themselves found were so common in this part of the world that they even named the region for it. Ibn Fadlan also noted their copious tattoos in dark blue or green designs from the tips of their toes to their necks. 
According to his description, they were all well-armed, carrying an axe, a sword, and a long knife that they didn't put down for a moment. The women, on the other hand, wore plenty of jewelry made of gold and silver and green glass beads that apparently were all the rage among the Scandinavian women at the time when Ibn Fadlan encountered them. He noted that the amount of jewelry a woman wore was a reflection on her husband's wealth, and his prestige would grow with the amount of gold his wife would wear around her neck. With so much gold and silver out and about, I guess it makes sense that they were constantly carrying around all those weapons. Not very surprisingly, Ibn Fadlan, who was a refined scholar from one of the most civilized urban centers at the time, where he no doubt moved in elite circles, was appalled by some of the habits of the Scandinavians. He wrote that they were the most unkept people Allah has created, and in this context, I'd like to remind you that the Anglo-Saxons thought the Vikings were dandies who bathed too frequently and paid too much attention to their hairdos. Ibn Fadlan did not concur. He found their hygiene, or lack thereof, revolting, describing how all the members of a Scandinavian household would take turns washing, even spitting and cleaning their noses in the same wash basin without changing the water. He was similarly disgusted by their tendency to relieve themselves whenever they felt like it, wherever they were at the time, and even more so by their habit of having sex openly, sometimes even in groups, without any shame or sense of propriety. Worst of all, they were polytheistic pagans. Some of Ibn Fadlan's most interesting passages are the descriptions of religious customs among the Scandinavian traders he encountered. When a trader would arrive in the town, He'd bring gifts to a primitive statue of a god. Ibn Fadlan doesn't bother with the names of the Viking deities. The trader placed the gifts, consisting of bread, meat, onions, milk, and some other beverage that might have been mead, in front of the statue. Then he prostrated himself before the statue and prayed for success in his business venture, listing the goods he had brought with him and uh, presenting the gifts he was sacrificing to the god. After presenting his case and his offering, he asked the god to send him a merchant with lots of money who would trade favorably and not haggle too much. That last bit really has the ring of authenticity to it. To this very day, Scandinavians entering a Middle Eastern bazaar offer up a silent prayer with the same wish for a minimum of haggling, a habit they're unaccustomed to and generally really bad at. Ibn Fadlan goes on to say, that if business was slow, the trader would come back to the statue and offer additional gifts. If that didn't help, he'd return with even more gifts, but these he'd present to minor figures grouped around the main statue. Ibn Fadlan explains that these were figures representing the gods' wives and children, and they were asked to intercede on the trader's behalf. So basically, the trader asked the god's wife to nag him into helping the trader. At the end of the day, most Scandinavian traders would be successful because their furs and slaves were in high demand in Serkland. After he had sold all his goods, the trader would return to offer a sacrifice to thank the god for his assistance. The trader sacrificed a goat or some other animal and distributed some of the meat among the poor and needy in the town. The rest he placed in front of the statue and the head of the sacrificed animal he impaled on a pole. The following day, the trader came back and was pleased to note that the god had accepted his sacrifice and consumed his gift. But Ibn Fadlan noted that it wasn't the god, but rather the local dogs, who'd come out to feast on the meat at night. If you've heard of Ibn Fadlan before, 
You're most likely familiar with his description of the funeral of a Viking chieftain who happened to die when he was there. First, the man was buried in a temporary shallow grave with some modest grave goods to hold him over while people prepared for the proper arrangements for the real send-off. A key part of the preparation was to find a volunteer willing to be sacrificed and join the dead chieftain on the voyage to the afterlife. Once a young woman had stepped forward, she was kept under close guard night and day until the funeral, so she wouldn't try to back out or escape. On the day of the funeral itself, the dead chieftain's ship was drawn up on land, and around it, people set up wooden statues. An older woman, called the Angel of Death, arranged an elaborate seat for the dead man on the ship, using cushions in the finest Byzantine silk. The body, blackened by now, was exhumed from its temporary resting place and dressed in beautiful clothes that had been made especially for the occasion. It was then placed in the fancy seat on the ship. He was surrounded by offerings of food and drink, herbs and spices, fruits and even beverages, a solid buffet in other words. They even added musical instruments and other gifts. Then, a dog was cut in two and placed on the ship. The canine sacrifice was followed by two horses, two oxen, a rooster and a hen. Finally, they brought forward the woman who was to be sacrificed as well. Before the ceremony, she had spent a long time getting into the mood by drinking and chanting songs. She was lifted up into the air three times as a sign of respect and then led to the boat. There, the angel of death gave her a bowl of some alcoholic beverage to drink and the woman sang a song bidding farewell to life. Finally, Four men held her down while she was simultaneously strangled and stabbed to death. Apparently, the drink she had been given wasn't strong enough because the woman who was being sacrificed screamed to high heavens. The chieftain's men stood around the ship and beat their shields with their swords to drown out the sound of her screams. When it was all over, they set fire to the ship and everything in it, and once it had been reduced to nothing but ashes, it was covered with dirt until they had erected a mound. Ibn Fadlan's account has become the standard description of elite Viking Age funerals in Scandinavia, especially in pop culture depictions. But maybe we shouldn't draw too far-reaching conclusions based on this text. For instance, we don't know if this was standard practice even among Scandinavian chieftains at the time, or in all of Scandinavia, or throughout all of the Viking Age. It certainly wasn't something just anyone off the street could expect. We also don't know to what extent this particular funeral was influenced by practices picked up or even invented in Gordariki. With all those caveats in mind, there are still archaeological as well as literary evidence supporting the theory that this was indeed more or less the way rich and important people could expect to be buried in Viking Age Scandinavia. And speaking of traditions and habits, just like everywhere else they went, the Scandinavians who went to East like to mix their peaceful trading with some raiding, pillaging and good old-fashioned warfare whenever they had the chance. Sarkland was no exception in this regard. For approximately 200 years, the southern shores of the Caspian Sea, in modern-day Iran, Dagestan and Azerbaijan, were the subject of intermittent onslaughts by Vikings. The first tentative violent attacks were undertaken in the middle of the 9th century, so depending on when you believe they started to trade in the area, they had either been trading for a few decades, or they introduced themselves to the people of Sarkland as violent raiders right off the bat. Since they attacked an organized society with widespread literacy and well-kept records, we know that the first attack, which was rather modest in scope and size, 
took place in the reign of Hassan ibn Zaid, who was the ruler of Tabaristan in what's today northern Iran. Hassan was the great-grandson of Ali, the fourth caliph, and thus a big deal in the Muslim world. The Vikings couldn't care less, though, and attacked the prosperous port city of Abaskun, a place where Scandinavian traders most likely already had been trading. Word of the rich markets of this trading hub might have reached the ears of those more interested in raiding than trading via returning Scandinavian merchants. But the attackers seem to have underestimated the town's defenses, or their own abilities, because they didn't manage to raid Abascoon, at least not this time around. But they did return again, once in the year 909, or possibly 910, and then again two years later. Both these attacks were also on a small scale, with only a dozen or so ships. Eventually, though, the Vikings would step up their raiding efforts in the Caspian Sea. The first major campaign in Cirkland was launched already in the year 913. A fleet of no fewer than 500 ships sailed from Gordariki down the Dnieper to the Black Sea, then up the river Don, and then they dragged their boats overland to the Volga. Once there, they sailed downstream into the Caspian Sea, attacking and pillaging along the southern coast. When taking this rather circuitous route, the Vikings had to pass through the land of the Khazars. I mentioned the Khazars in passing last time. They were a semi-nomadic people with a confederation of tribes that in the late 6th century established a loosely connected state covering the southeastern corner of Europe, including parts of modern-day Russia, Ukraine and Kazakhstan. From the middle of the 7th century onward, the Khazars were a major power player in the region. The Khazars were some of the fiercest competitors of the traders from Scandinavia and Gordariki. They controlled the great rivers flowing into the Black and Caspian Seas, so not only could they use these routes themselves, but they could also block others from reaching the lucrative markets in Miklagord and Serkland. When the Viking fleet showed up, the Khazars would only let them through if they promised to fork over half of their loot from the campaign on the way back home again. This might seem like a steep price, but the Scandinavians were in a weak bargaining position and refusing was really not an option if they didn't want to turn back home empty-handed. Just like before, the Vikings attacked Abascoon and the surrounding region. They not only sacked the town this time, but pillaged the countryside as well, grabbing as much loot as they could, killing the men and taking women and children as slaves. The locals tried to fight off the invaders by organizing a counterattack at sea, but it failed and the seemingly unstoppable looting and pillaging continued. The Viking fleet continued along the coast all the way to Baku, and there they raided deep inland as far as three days' journey. All in all, the campaign was a great success for the Vikings. But maybe the success had been a little too great. Representatives of the attacked peoples demanded that the Khazars not let the Viking fleet sail back home unmolested. The Khazars obliged, Maybe because of outrage at the brutality of the Viking attack, but more likely because of realpolitical considerations. The future ties with the neighbors to the south depended on going back on their deal with the Vikings. And besides, who knows what happened to the rest of the loot if the Scandinavian fleet was destroyed. The Khazars blocked the Volga Delta from the re for the returning Vikings, who were attacked and massacred by a coalition of peoples from Serkland that had been the victim of their pillaging. Few, if any, of the Vikings managed to escape with their lives and return home again. So far, their attacks in the Caspian Sea had either been rebuffed or ended in disaster. The Vikings would need time to lick their wounds, 
but they had by no means given up on the idea of taking the riches of Circland by force. There would be two additional major Viking campaigns in the region in the coming centuries. The second coordinated large-scale attack in Circland from Gordariki took place in the year 943, when Ingvar, the son of Rurik, was the leader in Kiev. You remember him, right? If you don't, you might want to go back and listen to episode 13 for some context. During the 943 expedition, the Vikings focused on the southwestern corner of the Caspian Sea, rowing up the river Kura deep into the Caucasus Mountains. There, they beat a local army and captured Barda, the capital of Iran in modern-day Azerbaijan. The Vikings promised to leave the locals alone if they would just recognize that their city was now under new management. But the locals would have none of it. They answered valiantly, but perhaps not very prudently, by throwing rocks and hurling abuse at the conquerors. The Vikings soon lost their patience and demanded that the inhabitants abandon their homes and their city. Unsurprisingly, they refused. The Vikings then started to slaughter the city's inhabitants, only sparing those who could be held for ransom. After they had mm, pacified the city, the Vikings used it as their base for pillaging and plundering the surrounding area. This went on for several months, and the invaders amassed large amounts of loot from the surviving inhabitants of Iran. What saved them in the end was an outbreak of dysentery in Barda. The weakened state of the invaders ignited the spirit of resistance in the locals once again, and they gathered an army that they sent to liberate Barda from the Vikings. As the liberating army approached the city, the Vikings made a sally, during which, according to tradition, their leader was riding on a donkey. The attempt at a preemptive strike at the approaching army was a complete failure, and the Vikings lost 700 warriors. Manpower that couldn't be replaced isolated as they were in a hostile land far, far away from home in Gordariki. The survivors made it back to the relative safety of the fortress of Barda, but as the Muslim army encircled the city, it was plain for anyone to see that the expiration date on that safety was fast approaching. So they did the only thing they could do if they wanted to survive. They snuck away. In the middle of the night, they loaded themselves up with as much loot as they could carry and dragged as many slaves as they could with them down to the remaining ships by the river. Then they set off downstream as quickly and as quietly as they possibly could before the besiegers would realize what had happened. The third major campaign took place in the year 965. This time, it was Ingvar and Helga's son Sviatoslav who attacked the Khazars themselves. For a very long time, the Khazar state had been an ally of Constantinople and a useful buffer for the Byzantine Empire. As long as the Khazars controlled their territory, the northern borders of the empire were reasonably safe from attacks by various nomadic tribes or pincer movements carried out by the Caliphate in the east. But for whatever reason, the imperial government in Constantinople decided to throw their Khazar allies under the proverbial bus sometime in the beginning of the 10th century. Instead, Byzantine envoys sent out feelers to Sviatoslav, the ruler of Kiev, seeing if the Rus would be interested in working together with Constantinople to weaken or even crush the Khazars. The reason for this shift in policy might have been a Byzantine desire to take direct control over Crimea and the Caucasus. The reason they turned to Kiev might have been that they harbored hopes of converting the Rus to Christianity. After all, as we've discussed before, Sviatoslav's own mother, Helga, had converted, and Sviatoslav's son, Vladimir, would also eventually convert not only himself, but all of his subjects to Christianity. In any case, 
The leaders of Kiev were only too happy to go along with the Byzantine overtures to take out their competitors to the south. They had been chafing under Khazar demands for tribute and toll for a long time, and relations between the two trading warrior states had been deteriorating steadily since the Khazars had restricted traffic from Gordoriki along the Volga following the campaign of 943. The Khazar leadership wasn't stupid though. They had long realized that Kiev represented a growing threat, and they had even established a fortress at Sarkel on the river Don. Sarkel was located at the portage between the Don and the Volga rivers, and many traders or raiders from Gordoriki passed by here on their way to the Caspian Sea. The Khazars beefed up this defensive position with the aid of Byzantine engineers, since the construction was undertaken in the middle of the 9th century, when they were still officially allied with Constantinople. In exchange for the architectural know-how, the Khazars ceded territory in the Crimea to the Byzantine Empire. Roughly a century later, the fortress at Sarkel would be put to the test. Unfortunately for the Khazars, it wouldn't prove to be as effective as they might have hoped. At this time, the Khazars were under pressure from all sides, the Byzantines in the west, the Rus in the north, and various tribes making incursions from the east. They were losing the grip on their territory. When he launched his attack in the 960s, Sviatoslav enlisted the help of mercenaries from the tribes that had been harassing the Khazars from the east. They were a valuable counterweight against the Khazar cavalry that had far superior abilities to anything the Rus were able to muster. The Rus forces managed to capture the town and fortress of Sarkel in 965 or so and took over control of this strategically important position in the trade route to Serkland. A few years later, uh, Sviatoslav and his army also took the Khazar capital of Atil. That prosperous town that had been such an important stop along the trade route from the Baltic Sea to Serkland was destroyed completely. Eyewitness accounts of the devastation claimed that after the Rus attack, its vineyards and gardens had been razed, and not even alms for the poor were available. A hundred years later, a passing traveler reported that the town was still in ruins. The destruction of the Khazar state opened up a whole range of new opportunities for Kiev. From now on, the Rus would completely dominate the trade routes along the Russian rivers, something that increased their wealth and power immensely. With time, the Rus would secure their demographic and political hold over the area, which today is Ukraine, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. But the expansion of Rus' control didn't necessarily bring about peace. Just because the Khazars were crushed, it didn't mean that the Rus stopped their military activity in Serkland. On the contrary, there were several campaigns in the 11th century directed against various Muslim peoples. The last major campaign to Serkland from Scandinavia proper took place in the 1030s and 1040s, and its ultimate goal might have been to try to re-establish a direct trade route from the Baltic Sea to Baghdad, now when the Khazars were out of the picture. The expedition was led by a man called Ingvar the Far-Travelled. There are three modern-day theories on Ingvar's origin, but I won't burden you with the details. The abridged version is that they all conclude that he was the son of one Swedish king or another, mostly arguing about chronology and placing Ingvar in the right generation within the same family. There were also close family ties to the ruling dynasty in Kiev, since the Swedish princess, who might have been Ingvar's aunt, was married to the ruler of Kiev, Yarislefer Valdemarsson, internationally perhaps better known under his Russian name Yaroslav I. Whoever Ingvar was exactly, 
He was an important man connected to powerful people. He managed to raise a fleet of no less than 200 ships, which could have carried as many as 15 to 20,000 Viking warriors. The campaign must have been of national importance to the Swedes, because of warriors from three of the four regions under the control of their king was represented in the fleet. Only the armed forces of Attundaland were kept home in defense of the kingdom. The fleet under Ingvar's command left Sweden in approximately the year 1036 and stayed for a few years in Kiev. There, the Viking army fought against nomadic tribes that were pestering the Rus. But in 1041 or 1042, they finally continued to Serkland. Unfortunately, the expedition failed miserably, and instead of silver and other riches, the vast majority of those who set out with Ingvar only found their deaths on the shores of the Caspian Sea. According to the saga of Ingvar the Far-Traveled, the Vikings participated in a war in the Caucasus against rebels backed by the Byzantines. Later, they were defeated and crushed when trying to raid the lands south of the Caspian Sea. If the saga is to be believed, only one of the 200 ships who originally set out to on the campaign ever returned to Sweden. As usual, sagas shouldn't be treated as the gold standard for historical veracity, but we do have other indications that the expedition was a military fiasco that cost many lives. There are no fewer than 26 runestones found in the area where the warriors came from that mention Ingvar's expedition, and, perhaps more importantly, they're all erected in commemoration of someone who fell in Serkland. One of these stones mentions Ingvar's brother, who went east for gold, but died in Serkland. Another good indication that this campaign was an unmitigated disaster is the fact that it was to be the last coordinated military expedition from Scandinavia to Serkland, and no further attempts were made to re-establish the trade route to the east via the Caspian Sea. In addition, the silver output from the declining Abbasid Caliphate also started to dry up at this point, making the long and dangerous voyage to Serkland less profitable, definitely less profitable than the trade with Constantinople. As a consequence, the Scandinavian trade along the Volga to the east ceased, and we leave this part of the world out of our narrative for a few hundred years to come. But we will be back. Once the Russians get their act together and set up a state, that state will, at times, have a substantial influence over the political developments in Scandinavia, for better and for worse. Next time, though, we'll take a look at what was going on back home in Scandinavia during the Viking Age. So far, we've spent 15 episodes looking at what Vikings did overseas, but what were they doing at home? If you're curious to know, then be sure to tune in next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please consider leaving a favorable review and perhaps a bunch of stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. I look forward to hearing from you.